Voice-Elation. Greetings, my amazing crampon-clad colleagues. Welcome to Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics. This is Kevin Brown, your virtual ASR and ASR with egg on his face. Apparently, I was tying up my mask to run into room seven the other day, but this time felt different, like cold, clammy, wet, gross different. I looked down to see what the heck was going on, only to see approximately one order of scrambled eggs and my mask looking back at me. Somewhere in that journey, not from farm to table, but from plate to mouth in the cafeteria, those orange chunks of dubious dairy were deconstructing mid-flight and landing in my mask, which at this point was strongly resembling a feedback. Dubious dairy indeed. Let's look at the ingredients. Soybean oil, water, natural flavoring agents, xanthan, and cellulose gum. It's not Eglin's best. They're cracking open in there. Cracking open a box is more like it. Well, I was cracking open a box of memorabilia the other day. I can't throw anything out and came across something that put a big Texas smile on my face. A Nexus One cell phone of mine from 2010. Google's first attempt at a pure Google device. So many cool things about this phone. Look, if you're listening to this show on your iPhone 5, you may want to fast forward. Nerd alert. Nerd alert indeed. I saw a nurse actually looking at his iPhone 5 the other day. At first, I didn't even know he was looking at a cell phone. I thought it was a business card. It was so small. Well, the Nexus One wasn't that much bigger. 3.7-inch screen, but it had a few things going for it. You could get it engraved from Google with your name, email, whatever, which was huge given I left my phone in Central all the time. The staff tried to help me by routinely peel-packing it with an indicator, putting it on the rack to be processed, trying to put the fear of God in me. It didn't work. It had this trackball on it for scrolling, which I thought was really cool. Giving one of my favorite arcade games as a kid was Missile Command that you controlled with. What else? A trackball. But you know what really pulled my nerd in was the pre-installed bootloader. Every phone you buy today has an operating system on it that dictates how it looks, how it works. But this particular phone had a bootloader that allowed you to gain root access to the phone, get rid of the native operating system, and replace it with a custom OS or ROM made by individual developers. The day I discovered online the XDA developer forum and saw screenshots of what could be, I had this idea. I am going to hack this phone and flash a custom ROM on it, come hell or high water, and be the envy of the OR lounge. Now, for somebody who's a casual programmer, this was a mountain fraught with danger, as this was the early days, so there was a better-than-even chance that something was going to go horribly wrong, and go wrong it did. I temporarily bricked the phone. What does that mean, Kevin? And the phone just wouldn't come on or do anything. Essentially a brick, which is a big deal because this phone was a cash purchase only. I think 500 and some dollars, which was a lot of money for a phone at the time. Undeterred, I kept at it. Figured it out over a couple weeks. And resurrection power, I was finally able to get a custom ROM called Cyanogen on there. And it looked amazing. Ran super fast. I loved the live wallpapers. Remember those things? No bloatware, no apps on the phone you couldn't delete. No spyware that I knew of. It was a glorious two weeks until I got the email saying, you know what? As a company, we're all going in on the iPhone. (laughs) Dang. Well, you know, as I look at this amazing device and look back on that time of my life, it never ceases to amaze me how an idea can take root in your mind, pun intended, that will supersede all real or perceived risk and drive you pretty much through any and all obstacles to see it through to the end. Speaking of, let's grab a bucket of theater popcorn, throw some Reese's Pieces in there. What a combo that is. And fire up one of the more creative movies I've ever seen, Christopher Nolan's Inception, released about the same time as the Nexus One phone. 
Stone, ironically, 2011. Did you ever see that? You need to. Four Oscars, just an amazing film about Leonardo DiCaprio attempting to plant a thought into the mind of a CEO vis-a-vis dream-sharing technology. I love this line from the movie, and I quote, What's the most resilient parasite? An idea. A single idea from the human mind can build cities. An idea can transform the world and rewrite all the rules. Profound quote is so many things start with what? An idea. I think I'd like to buy a pizza tonight. Honey, let's go shopping and look at laser pointers. How about maybe I should take my mask off before I eat breakfast? Well, those are all ideas, but they're kind of little ideas, right? Some tasks have such a degree of difficulty, they demand a much bigger idea just so that we'll see it to the end, right? I love this quote from Alabama native and New York Times bestselling author Andy Andrews, success requires the emotional balance of a committed heart. When confronted with a challenge, the committed heart will search for a solution. The undecided heart searches for an escape. Great stuff right there. So what are examples of a big idea? How about I will complete a triathlon? No striker reps. I know what you're thinking, and it's not that. Have you heard of the lazy man triathlon, by the way? Basically have a whole month to complete it. I'm thinking give me a year, some time in the PT therapy tub, a few runs to the implant room. I'll log my dolly distance to receiving. Done. Well, clearly, I am not a triathlete. Why? Because the idea just isn't there for me, which is a problem from the outset, right? How about I am committed to this relationship working? Well, if that idea of making it work is a little idea and not a big idea, we're just going to bail when things inevitably get hard, won't we? Let's look at something even harder. How about climbing Mount Everest, for example? I don't know. Some relationships, climbing Mount Everest might be a walk in the park, right? Doing something like that kind of demands a big idea, right? So, Kevin, what are you doing this weekend? Ah, I'm looking at a couple things. Nice scrambled egg breakfast. Maybe reorganize my Three Stooges tape drawer. I don't know. Maybe climb Mount Everest. What are you guys doing? Is there anybody out there in the world that could pull off that and Everest Summit with that level of commitment to the idea? Surely not. Well, our next guest today knows something about commitment. He knows something about the power of the big idea, and he knows a lot about climbing Mount Everest. Heads up here, you might need some supplemental oxygen on hand for this episode as we're going to go 30,000 feet up talking with Greg Paul, the only person to have summited Mount Everest, the highest mountain above sea level with not a microfracture, not a PFJ, not a uni, not a TKA. Now, nah, that would be too easy. He got his 44,250 steps into the summit with bilateral knee replacements. And yes, for those of us who obsess over our steps, I'll say it again, 44,250, just an incredible and inspiring story. Trust me, you're going to want to hang around for this one. Some of you may still be stuck on crampon clad colleagues, by the way. What's a crampon? My wife thought it sounded like a pair of pliers. I was leaning feminine hygiene. It's neither. An attachment to a shoe or boot that provides traction by means of spikes. Useless trivia, I know, but longtime listeners know of my love for trivia. So here's a good one. What's a mountain anyway? Well, most geologists classify a mountain as a landform that rises at least 1,000 feet or more above its surrounding area. What would that be in building terms? The 1,043-foot Chrysler Building in New York City. First building ever to be more than 1,000 feet, by the way. And technically, a mountain in its own right. It's just crazy that Mount Everest is 30 Chrysler buildings. Well, that's a literal definition, but a mountain can also represent an obstacle, a challenge to be overcome to reach an ultimate goal. Rascal Flatts told us life is a highway. Great song, but I humbly disagree. I believe life is composed of a 
series of mountains, not only personally, but professionally. And because we love metaphors here on Device Nation, we're going to use said metaphor to launch our Summit Series. To Pew Reps, I know what you're thinking, and it's not that. We're going to be talking about that for the next few episodes. So I really want you to be thinking about it. What are the mountains in front of you right now? Now, for some of you, it can be business-related, making quota, hiring challenges, team dynamics. How about just having a complete set of implants for your cases tomorrow? You might have mountains in front of you that are uniquely personal, from marriage, financial, raising children. How about an obstacle my barber clearly struggles with, cutting sideburns even? I watched him the other day. He cuts one side, and then he does this Steve Curry look-away thing on the other. I get it. The look away brings a little flash, a little sizzle, completely distracting me from the fact that my left sideburn is now a good two inches lower than the right. How is this even possible in 2023? But I digress. So ponder it. What do you want to achieve this week, this month, this year, and what are the obstacles in your way? Hang around after our conversation today as I have one thought I want to leave with you on this subject. So strap on your crampon and let's see what we can learn from Greg Paul's experience to summit safely and successfully. Well, who is Greg Paul? I am so excited to bring his story to Device Nation. He's an avid skier, rock climber, mountain climber, entrepreneur, successful businessman, family man, and lover of just about anything outdoors. When he went to the doctor about his knee pain, the doctor told him he needed to find a new outdoor activity and suggested something along the lines of croquet. Well, obviously that didn't happen. Can you imagine what an excruciating interview this would be if it had? Just an amazing story about perseverance, adversity, and commitment to the big idea of climbing a really big mountain from from a truly inspiring man. Greg Paul, welcome to the show, sir. Glad to be here. Well, Greg, we got a podcast summit of sorts today. I can't wait to ask you about your summit experience on Mount Everest, the Kumba Icefall, John Krakauer, Lukla Airport, Noang Tenzing. I hope I'm pronouncing your Sherpa's name right. Your bilateral knee replacements. But before we get going, sir, will we be able to conduct this interview without the use of supplemental oxygen? I sure hope so. I'm up at about 8,000 feet at Snowbird, Utah. I guess some people that come up here and ski get altitude sickness, but I'm pretty acclimatized. So I think we can get on with it. That's sea level for people like you. Well, let's just go back to your childhood in New Jersey, sir, the Garden State. What put you on the path to mountaineering? My brothers took me up skiing when I was around 12 years old in Vermont, and I really enjoyed that. That became a, an obsession of mine, skiing. And back in, in the east, their hills, I had some relatives that lived in Utah, and I went out there and visited them in the spring when I was about 16 years old, and they took me skiing up here in Alta. And that's real mountains. And I fell in love with the West and the Rockies. And then as I was in my mid-30s, I was a scoutmaster in Northern California. And I took the scouts to go climb Mount Shasta, which is a 14,200-foot mountain. We had no idea what we were getting into. It almost turned into an epic adventure. Luckily, uh, everybody survived. I learned quite a bit. And that was my introduction to high-altitude climbing. And I went on from there. A long scouting tradition, Greg, is sending some of the scouts out on a snipe hunt. Tell me that happened on Mount Shasta. I'm a big fan of snipe hunts. And <laughs> I got to tell you one story about a snipe hunt I did. So I bring a pillowcase with me when I go snipe hunting. And Naturally. usually I take a bunch of young kids. It's got to be dusk, dark. You have a flashlight. And I fill my pockets full of small rocks because you throw the rocks and it makes it look like a snipe running through the brush. <laughs> and then you get the kids running. 
after the snipe and you corner the snipe and then you put the pillowcase down on the ground and you know you start shaking it when the snipe gets in there to get them going well i'm doing this and i get this rock and i turn around to throw it behind me and i it was a pretty good sized rock and i threw it and i hit the kid right in the forehead oh no put a nice shiner in his forehead and he falls down and oh the snipe the snipe hit me (laughs) i was embarrassed to admit it you know right Right off the bat, but we got back to the house and I go, I got to tell you why he's got a red mark on his head to the parents. And they all got a kick out of that. And even today, I'd say 15 years later, that kid tells that story. I would have stuck to that story that the biggest snipe I've ever seen in my life just nailed him. Right. Well, you know what? Mountains are real estate. Would like to talk about some of your business acumen for a second. You started out life in the real estate securities industry in the early 80s. Help us out here. What are real estate securities? When you put a group of people together to buy a property, say an office building or an apartment, it has to be wrapped in a securities package. It's sort of like a mutual fund where mutual funds own stocks, a real estate investment trust or a real estate security partnership. It owns properties, numerous properties, and the ability to to get, let's say, hundreds of people to put a couple of thousand dollars like they would in a mutual fund to put that into a, a couple of properties that requires you to be licensed like a stockbroker as opposed to being licensed as a real estate broker. I was licensed as a stockbroker and that was my profession for a number of years. So when did you make that transition from the real estate investment industry to full-time mountain climbing? In 2008, we uh, as a country and the entire world almost fell off a cliff. We had that worldwide recession and we were smack dab in the middle of that real estate recession with my businesses. I decided as an owner of the business that rather than lay off my employees, I kind of laid myself off and took a sabbatical at that time where I could pursue some of my passions, which was mountain climbing. And I did it feeling that it would be the best thing for my business And also the best thing for me, because it was a very stressful time, you know, just with trying to keep things running as a businessman. So being able to go and focus my attention on climbing and particularly Mount Everest was a good release (laughs) and uh, to get my mind off of what was going on in the real world. Well, you use the word business in the plural sense. I believe your love of climbing would eventually meet in the middle in the form of a company called Momentum Indoor Climbing. Six locations now. Tell us about it. What do you do? In 2006, before that great recession hit us, our our real estate business was doing well enough that we could invest in other areas. And when you can pursue your passion as a business, that's like the ultimate happiness when it comes to livelihood. And I was given an opportunity to join some other folks that were climbers and to build one of the biggest climbing gyms in the country, if not the biggest at that time. I was the least experienced rock climber of the group. So I was privileged to be together with these these guys. They were true rock stars. That was also a business that was teetering during the recession. But actually, we found out that it was quite recession proof because you know when everything else goes down the drain people want to pursue what they love doing sure. uh, at all costs and climbers are very passionate folks and they kept coming to the gym so that was the one bright spot in that whole period of time and it was also just for me being able to introduce rock climbing and indoor climbing to people that hadn't done it before to friends to neighbors 
that kind of buoyed my spirits during a, you know, rough, elongated business cycle. Well, Greg, six locations is one thing. Seven is another altogether, as in seven summits. What a segue there. What are they? And I believe where you're staying at right now has a little bit of history about the seven summits. It does. Uh, I'm at a ski resort called Snowbird in Utah, and it was founded by Dick Bass, who was a Texas oil man and also a mountaineer and a skier. Back in 1985, he summited Mount Everest, and that completed his quest to summit the seven highest peaks in the seven continents. And he wrote a book about it called The Seven Summits. The whole idea of climbing those kind of mountains kind of became a a distant dream at that time. But yeah, I'm here at the uh, resort that he built. In fact, this morning I was walking through the hallways of the resort center and there was a big mural with all of his pictures of climbing Mount Everest and on the summit and the other mountains that he he climbed in order to complete the, the seven summit journey. And that whole seven summit thing has become sort of a bucket list for folks that have that desire. And I've pursued it to a certain degree. I've climbed most of the difficult peaks that are included in the seven summits, Aconcagua down in Argentina, Elbrus over in Georgia. It's part of Russia now. Denali up in Alaska, (laughs) Everest. I've kind of pivoted during my mountaineering career to, rather than pursuing the seven summits, which some of them aren't the most interesting mountains or or the most fun to climb. And it does take a big lump of time out of your your life to do that. I've kind of pivoted and I, I look for what's called the perfect peaks. These are just dramatic, scenic, fun to climb mountains around the world, like the Matterhorn or Alpamayo in Peru or Amadablam in Nepal. They're not necessarily the not necessarily the highest, but they're spectacular. And some of them are quite difficult, but a level of difficulty that makes them interesting and uh, epic. And these are also climbs that because they're not at always at these extreme altitudes, they might be difficult, but they're not as necessarily as dangerous. That high altitude going after the Everests or the K2s or there's 14, like 8,000 meter peaks. That's even a bigger quest to go after the 14, 8,000 meter peaks. And when you have five kids and 16 grandkids, uh, at a point, you got to draw the line. <laughs> Let's just say my wife made me draw a line. I was really interested in pursuing K2 after I finished Everest. My wife put the kibosh on that because <laughs> it's a pretty deadly mountain. It took me three attempts to finally summit Mount Everest in 2016, and it usually takes at least that number of attempts to to get to the top of K2 unless you're really lucky and can do it the first time you you try it. And these kind of expeditions take at least two to three months out of your life just being over there and literally a year or two in physical, emotional, material preparation. I read an article just the other day about a guy who skied down K2, kind of a Red Bull stunt. That was just amazing. What an incredible mountain. And in that same reading session, I read about the seven summits, and the author ranked the climbs from the hardest to the easiest. And I was genuinely surprised to see which one they ranked as most difficult. Care to guess which one he said? That's a trick question. I'm going to say uh, Kilimanjaro, just because he thinks that 
easiest one. <laughs> you absolutely nailed it. And his argument, it was just the elevation that you change on summit night just made it incredibly brutal. And one of those seven summits was certainly Mount Everest. I learned something so cool this week, Greg. If you measure from the center of the earth to the top of the summit, Mount Everest is not the tallest mountain. It's actually Mount Chimborazo in Ecuador. I believe you may be familiar with this mountain. I did. Uh, last, uh, let's see, January of 2022, I, I put together a group of climbers and we went to Ecuador. We climbed actually five mountains when we were there in a two-week period, including Cotopaxi, which is more famous than Chimborazo. Just in Utah, there's actually a company called Cotopaxi that makes clothing. And if you're in Utah, you really know that. But it, that company now is pretty well known around the country. But just the peak Cotopaxi is this like perfect volcano. And that's the main goal of many people that go climb in Peru. But Chimborazo, like you say, measured from the center of the earth is closer to the moon than, than Everest. So it's kind of fun to tell people, you know, you climb the highest peak and, and you say it's Chimborazo. It kind of throws them for a loop. And it is actually a pretty difficult climb. It kind of goes forever and ever on this long slope with fake summits that really become discouraging. In fact, when I was down there, the night we were to climb, we were at high camp and I got COVID. My tent mate had COVID and I got it and I didn't know it. I'm climbing up this mountain. Usually I'm pretty strong. This was our last peak and we'd already climbed four and I built great on those previous climbs and now I felt really crappy and tired and I couldn't get a full breath. I pushed on and made it to the top and found out afterwards testing to get out of the country that I had COVID. Well, I'm glad you're on the other side of that, Greg. I remember a reporter asking famous British mountaineer George Mallory why he wanted to climb Mount Everest. And he replied, because it's there. I'm just curious, why did you want to climb Mount Everest? I get asked that all the time. People think I'm crazy. <laughs> uh, my neighbors, uh, they watched this movie in 2015 called Everest. It was about the 1996, you know, into thin air experience. And uh, we all went to the movie theater together to watch that. And they're like, we're not letting you go to Everest. Why do you want to do that? I think for a lot of mountaineers, it's kind of, you know, it's the progression of, you know, starting your climbs, smaller peaks, peaks that just require one day you know, climb, and then you go on an, a, a one-week expedition. You go climb Rainier. It takes two or three days to do that. And then once you've done Rainier, you go, well, what's next? Then you go down to Orizaba, which is a volcano in Mexico that, you know, another maybe a four- or five-day sort of climb, and you pushed it from 14,000 feet up to 18,000 feet. And you, you find that your your body can handle that. You're not held down by, by the altitude. From 18,000 feet, you, you look for the next peak. And Aconcagua down in Argentina, that's 23,000, the highest mountain outside of the Himalayas. And you go climb that and you succeed and you enjoy it. And then it's hard to not think about about Everest. And I think one is that progression and you develop this sense of adventure that comes with mountain climbing. And 
appreciation for the beauty out there and out there in a sense that there's risk and there's not certainty. Adventure is defined as going on a trip without a certain outcome. And you get that kind of in your blood. And then there's also something about mountaineering when you start going to other countries and appreciating the cultures that you encounter in those countries. Everybody knows about the Sherpa culture because you hear so much about it. It's true. Those people are just amazing. They're amazingly strong. They're amazingly kind and peaceful and there's just a whole different feel when you go over there. So it's not just about getting to the summit. And I know Edmund Hillary knows this too, because he vested so much of his life into the people over there after he started climbing in the Himalayas. He has a school named after him in a little village called Kumjung. I had an opportunity to go through that village many times as you know, I made my trek up to base camp and you get sucked into the adventure and all the things that are built into mountain climbing and Everest kind of is the, the peak experience of that whole progression. You know, we're going to talk about that disaster of 1996 and some of the other accidents up on the summit there. But one of the things that I found really interesting in my research, Greg, I'd love you to comment on just from the perspective of a mountaineer. It seems like every year after a disaster on Everest that the summit pass requests shot through the roof. Tell me what it is about the mountaineer psyche that that sees a disaster like that, just like you saw that movie. And instead of saying, ah, sea level's looking better every day, you're like, hey, I want to try that. It is a weird phenomena. I guess, you know, some people have that in their DNA, that the risk-taking chromosome or whatever, I don't, right. it makes them pursue risk or get a, a thrill out of taking on something of a risky nature. And when they see a disaster, they're, they're like attracted to it. In my climbing of Everest, several disasters that occurred year after year over there, an avalanche that killed 16 Sherpa in 2014, and then a, a huge earthquake that made an avalanche go right through base camp and killing 19 people. In fact, during my three attempts of Everest, 52 people died during those three years, making it a pretty high percentage death rate during that time. When I finally went over there in 2016, I think people's desire to take on the risk had subsided because only half the number of permits happened in 2016, which in my case, that was lucky because we had a lot fewer people on the mountain all vying for that summit. And as you've probably read, too many people get on the mountain when bad things happen, you know, log jams in the wrong places. So 2016, people finally were pretty freaked out by what had happened the previous years and kind of gave the mountain a rest. But that was the year I finally went over and was able to summit. I, I want to say that the last time I checked the stats, when you look at the people that have passed trying to climb Everest, there's a 10% chance that you weren't coming back. Any updates on that number? Is it higher? It's fluctuated in the just the past few years. Like I said, from 2012 to 2016, it, it jumped up because of anomalies. And those anomalies, they're not anomalies anymore. In 2012, for example, there was a slight warming, like a quarter of a degree, but that was enough to make the ice fall move more than it normally did and it 
it created a few more avalanches in the ice fall than previously happened. And there was also a large avalanche that came down the Noopsie face into what's called the Western Coombe, narrowly missing 75 climbers. And in that year, because of the weather and the number of people bunched together in, in a two-day time frame trying to get to the summit, usually the summit window, which is when the winds on the top of Everest subside because of uh, changing weather patterns, that usually happens mid to the end of May when you know, people can actually climb and not get blown off the mountain. In 2012, instead of having 20 days that were considered summit windows or when you could actually get to the summit, there was only two or three days. And all the people that remained on the mountain tried to get up in those two days and 11 people died. Uh, in fact, most of those people, I think nine out of the 11 died coming down just because there was too many people all bunched together and it took a lot longer to get up and a lot longer to get down. Thus, they were depleted of their oxygen, they're depleted of their strength and their will to go. That year, our expedition leader canceled the expedition. We made history, not the kind of history you want to make. We were the first expedition to be canceled in mid-expedition. In other words, we'd already done all of our acclimatization. We'd been up to Camp 2. We nearly got to Camp 3, but because of the bad weather, the Lopsy face was really dangerous. Rocks were coming down, chunks of snow. The wind was blow, blowing everything from what's called Lopsy is the fourth highest mountain, and things were coming off of it. And in fact, I was able to witness the highest helicopter rescue ever done at Camp Two. Wow! A Sherpa got hit by a rock, and he had to be evacuated. Otherwise, he would have died. Anyway, our expedition leader, Russell Bryce, brought us all into a tent. There was 32 climbers. 16 of those climbers were folks like me, just paying customers from all around the world. And the other 16 were British soldiers who had been wounded in battle. And they had been selected by Prince Harry to represent their country in what was known the Wounded Warrior Group. And they were all handpicked, having trained for years to go climb Mount Everest. And there was a documentary being made of their climb. We all got together in a large dome tent, thinking that we were going to be told that, okay, we're going to leave tomorrow for the summit. And usually when they do that, they assign a Sherpa companion or guide to each climber. And it's quite the ceremony, you know, being matched up with a Sherpa and you know that that is the guy that you're gonna, your life is in their hands when you summit that mountain. Instead of having that ceremony, Russell Bryce sat us all down and basically said that the mountain's too dangerous this year and I'm counseling. I don't want half of you to get killed on the mountain. And we all were fully aware of what had already happened on the mountain, the avalanches, this and that. But, you know, you have blinders on as a climber and all that is just part of climbing in your mind and you just want to go for the summit once he said that three-fourths of the room was crying all these climbers i mean we all put out a lot of money to get there and sure no refunds and we've worked years to get to where we were at to be in the room and to and to be ready to go for our summit attempt so it was quite the letdown you know to go through that 
You said worked years. I got to ask, let's say one of my listeners says to themselves, I want to summit Everest even after having heard about everything that can go wrong. What would the physical preparation look like for them to finally reach that point to say, okay, we're ready to roll? I guess it kind of depends on where your starting point is. My first time I went there in 2012, I was 58 and I was was living in Utah. My house is at 5,000 feet. Most of my playing is done between five and 11,000 feet because of the mountains elevation here in Utah. My normal activities is, you know, mountain biking, backcountry skiing, which means I hike up the mountain and ski down. In addition, just going to resorts and skiing. I was a rock climber and I was, you know, a mountain climber. That was my kind of normal day-to-day activity. So I was at a level of fitness just to participate in those sports. But in addition to that, Everest takes a whole another category of fitness in order to assure yourself a, a chance. The mountain wants to kill you, and you've got to be strong enough to reduce those chances of, of that happening. In 2012, I decided I was going to climb Everest about February 5th of 2012, and the expedition was going to get underway March 25th over in Nepal. I went out to a lunch in Utah with Russell Bryce, who happened to be there for an outdoor adventure conference they have in Utah. And he told me that there was a spot open on the team. And I had a friend there that was also at lunch who had gone with him the year before. And he goes, Greg, you got to take that spot. You need to go. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I go, I'm not ready. I'm not prepared. And he goes, nah, you're, you're in shape. You've been doing all these things. And I gave into his prompting and spent the next month and a half at REI buying gear and borrowing stuff from my friends to go over and attempt Everest. And I found out a lot more preparation needs to go into it. One, you should know what you're going to experience over there, the culture. I knew nothing about the Sherpa and their culture. I didn't know what to expect in Kathmandu or anything. I didn't have time. All I could do was get ready gear-wise and go over there. That was the year that our expedition was canceled. And I was actually, after the fact, thankful that happened. One, after we'd already come home, 11 people died on the mountain because of the bottlenecks I I told you about, the two-day summit window and that sort of stuff. But I also realized I went home and I didn't even know the name of the Sherpas that I was with while I was there. I just, I couldn't remember them. And I had like blinders on to not really see what was going on around me culturally, the dynamics of the team. I was so worried about being there and and climbing. So it was a blessing that I was able to go back because I learned more and more about the culture each time I went over there and appreciated what I was doing what I was experiencing so that when I finally did summit, it was all the more enriching experience. And the harder you work for something, the more joyful it is when you complete it. Are there resources here in the States dedicated to preparing someone for just that? I believe Alan Arnett is a name you threw out to me earlier. Yeah. I remember you you mentioned, what about your climbing gym? How does that play into preparing you for going to climb something like Everest? And I wrote in some notes that there's various types of climbing. Climbing doesn't just mean one thing. There's rock climbing. And that's what we do in an indoor climbing gym, basically, is climb up walls. And then there's the climbing that 
is considered mountaineering, which is more an, an endurance and aerobic activity. It's not climbing straight up, but hiking slopes forever and ever at high altitudes. And it requires a whole different type of training than, than climbing up a wall, say, in Yosemite. And you mentioned Alan Arnett. And Alan has so much experience in this area that he's created a program for aspiring uh, high-altitude climbers. And that's the best thing that I've seen out there if you're a total newbie to the sport and, and have that aspiration. There's other things, I'll just say, if your body needs not just to be aerobically ready for a climb, you need to have strength in every muscle. I learned that doing CrossFit was very helpful in my case just to balance out my physical fitness. I spent a lot of time on a Stairmasters. Even though I live in the mountains, I found that just getting uh, on a Stairmaster and, and staying on it for hours, I mean, that's the most boring thing in the world. But I'm telling you, most climbing in the Himalayas is very boring <laughs> until <laughs> until it gets really epic. It's it's hours of boringness interjected by sheer terror. <laughs> I also used a, a step up box that you'll see at any gym. Those wooden boxes that are like 18 inches and 24 inches on one side, and I would wear a 35 pound backpack. I uh, step up and down off of this box until. Two weeks before I went to Everest, I did it 1,000 times, wow. stepping up and down. And this was at a CrossFit gym. There was probably at least, what, eight CrossFit classes that happened while I was doing this. And the only way I would have been able to complete it was that everybody in the class, like, egged me on. Like, go, Fred, go, you know, keep going. And they all knew I was training for Everest. And, you know, having other people support you in your training and encouraging you and letting other people know what your goal is so that they can, again, give you that push that you need. Because it's really hard to train. There's days when you're just exhausted and just don't want to get out there and do it. And setting other people's expectations so that they can help you achieve your goals is like really necessary. You've got to be absolutely selfish. And I say this because I have, at the time, I had kids living at home. I have a, a wife that expects me to, you know, help out quite a bit. And Alan Arnett, in fact, <laughs> on a phone call with him, he goes, Greg, yeah, this is one time where being selfish could save your life because you've got to get rid of the distractions in, in life that take you away from your training because Everest is going to try to kill you. And if you don't, train and stick to a plan, you're not going to be ready. And there's so much going on in life with family and friends. There's a time and a season for, for them and training for Everest takes away from that time with your family. So you've got to make some decisions and you got to have a family and a wife that's willing to support and put up with your self-centered goals of climbing the highest mountain. That really doesn't mean a whole lot other than because it's there. <laughs> Speaking of terror, Greg, I looked at the Lukla Airport on YouTube, and I really can't think of a more frightening place to land or take off on a plane. Am I right or wrong here? Yeah, Lukla is known as the most dangerous airport on the planet, and it's about the length of an aircraft carrier. And at the end of the landing field, instead of water, which is at the end of the aircraft Carrier, there's a large cement wall. <laughs> and at the beginning of the landing strip, there's about a thousand foot drop. 
Wow. When you're approaching in a plane, you've got to make a perfect landing on this airstrip. In fact, there's a bunch of debris right at the beginning of the airfield, planes that didn't make it. They landed too low and just crashed into the cliff. Everybody's got their eyes peeled to the window, looking out as you come in. And and then when you take off, you've got that thousand foot drop. So you got to make sure you're what going the right speed when you get to the end of the airfield. Anyway, it's quite the experience. Uh, it, it's a good introduction to the terror and anxiety that you're going to be facing <laughs> later on. In, the, in fact, a lot of people now, just out of safety concerns, take a helicopter in. In fact, that's what I did the majority of the times I went to Lukla was just take a helicopter. And that also allows you to get in, even though the weather is a question, the planes have to have pretty much perfect weather where helicopter can kind of dodge around the clouds and get in with more surety. So you've made it to Lukla. You haven't crashed. <laughs> You're not anywhere near where you need to be yet. Tell us about that journey of hiking to the next destination. You got about a 37-mile journey from Lukla to base camp. Lukla is a little over 9,000 feet and base camps on average about 18,200 feet. Base camp's about a mile long and there's a about a 500 foot difference from the bottom of the base camp to the top. So you've got 9,000 vertical feet of altitude, but over those 37 miles, there's a lot of ups and downs. So you've probably got about 15,000 feet of up. Wow. Given all the ups and downs, the valleys you go down into and come out of that you got to cover in those 37 miles. A number of small villages that you go through. You take pretty much 10 to 11 days. The rule of thumb is you don't want to go any higher in a day than 1,000 feet. You don't want to gain more than 1,000 feet because if you do, you can get altitude sickness and your immune system is really compromised at those altitudes. And, and if you push your body too hard, you can get any number of illnesses. You're being exposed to a lot of different people from different countries with different germs that you're not used to. And it's really easy to pick up something and for it to affect you more than it would at lower altitudes. Sure. Uh, so you got to take it slow and easy in those 11 days. And they, it's punctuated by rest days. And it's actually kind of hard for the mountaineers to go that slow because we're kind of gun-ho guys and gals just ready to take on the road by that time. And those 11 days are, are really actually pretty casual and purposefully so because you're trying to get to know your teammates in that time frame and trying to develop team dynamics. And the, everybody's trying to figure each other out and whether you're going to be that guy or the one that's going to hold people back or you know, you're trying to decide who you want to hang out with, who you want to be on the rope with. And it's an important time during those 11 days to kind of figure all that out and appreciate, smell the roses around you and just kind of get into the kumbu mode of thinking. <laughs> As you're hiking those 11 days, pondering how much money did it take to get us here? I've just got to ask, you got the Summit Pass, you got Sherpa Services, Tour Guide, the gear that you talked about at REI. How much lighter is one's wallet at that point? Just getting to base camp as let's say you're just a trekker. You're not planning on climbing Mount Everest. It's probably one of the most economical adventures you can do. It's probably around $2,000, $3,000 to spend, I would say, three weeks or more over there in Nepal. 
as a trekker, you add Everest to the equation, and now you've got to get a climbing permit. You've got all the gear for high altitude climbing, boots that cost $1,200, a summit suit that costs $1,200. I mean, the gear alone probably adds up easily to $10,000, heavy-duty, 40-below sleeping bags, and just the odds and ends you need clothing-wise and gear-wise. The permit adds another $10,000 to it. The expedition cost can be anywhere from a low-end, bare-bones expedition, maybe around $35,000, to nowadays they have expeditions where you get your own tent, like a regular bed, not even a sleeping bag and you know, TV, uh, hot tub, that kind of thing. And those go for 120. I, I was not in that category. I wasn't in the bare bones. My wife wanted a good solid expedition that was uh, well-known. And that's why I went with uh, Russell Bryce with Himex. He runs a well-known show, never lost a client and just highly recommended. And But Everest is not for the faint of heart financially. <laughs> no doubt. So you made it to base camp, home away from home, 18,000 feet, three miles up. How long do you hang around there and what's the atmosphere like? When you initially get there, all the different expeditions are scattered over about a mile long area and you're living literally on top of ice. There's about a three feet of rock and then below that is ice. It's moving and it's disconcerting because at night you hear rocks that are 15 feet under the ground. I'm talking boulders that are breaking in half and shaking the ground and making weird cracking noises. And you're wondering <laughs> when the ground is going to open up underneath you because there's all sorts of crevasses around where there used to be solid ground. Now there's a big opening wow. and you're right there amongst all of that. And you step out of, well, your tent is on top of these rocks. The Sherpa come in two to three weeks before climbers come in and try to clear these rocks. Every year is a different year as far as base camp. It, it's always moving, so they can't have permanent camps up there. They got to be made every year. And there's about 38 expeditions uh, nowadays up there with literally by the middle of May, there's over a thousand people at base camp, climbers and cooks and porters and all the people that it takes to make this happen. And it's unreal. It's just a big rock an ice pile. I'll be in my tent, you know, middle of the night. I'm feeling something poking me in the back that wasn't there three hours ago. And it's a sharp rock that's been pushed up. And now you've got to get up and move your pad over and try to dig around that and push it away. And wow. you're always doing things like that. It's just crazy. And every expedition initially sets up a quarantine rope around their area because you have now been with your team for 11 days and you've gotten used to your team and their germs and what have you. And you don't want to mix with other camps because of the possibility of catching some illness from people that you haven't been around. And if you catch an illness, a cold or a stomach bug, it doesn't go away in two to three days because of your compromised immune system at that altitude. So it it's you're in your own little pot of people initially and there's a very strict schedule you're woken up by sherpas at 7:30 in the morning and you're expected to be at where you go meet for food at eight o'clock and then we have lunch at noon and then dinner at six o'clock most groups get into base camp around april 10th or 11th and 
you've got to rest then for probably four or five days before you start what's called rotations. Rotations are when you start to work your way up the mountain and acclimatize at different levels on the mountain and build up that red blood cell count, which is like key in order for you to survive at high altitudes. By approximately April 15th, we're headed off to a peak called Lobache, which is about an two-hour hike from Mount Everest. It's a peak that's now being used more and more to climatize on instead of making multiple trips up the Kumbu Icefall, given the dangers of the icefall. So we would go to Lobache and spend nearly a week there, and we would climb that mountain, which is about 21,000 feet, equivalent to going up to Camp 2. We would actually climb it twice, and on our second climb of it, we would sleep on the top for two nights. And it is the most amazing place to sleep because you are looking right over at Everest and Lhotse and Nupsi and down at base camp. Yeah, it's an inspiring place to set up a tent, to say the least. From climbing Lobache, you would then head back to Everest base camp and spend another three days just sitting around recovering, trying not to do anything because the body has to rest in between those acclimatization rotations. And after that rest of three or four days, we head up the icefall to Camp 1 and spend maybe a night there and then head back down to base camp, where we'd spend probably two to three days again, just lily gagging around, doing nothing, listen to books on tapes, uh, watching movies on your computer. They actually just advise you to lay around in your tent and be bored. After that three or four days, We'd head up to camp two and spend two or three nights up there at that altitude. I'm back down, spend another two or three days at base camp. And by the end of April, about April 28th or 29th, we'd go back up to camp two, spend a night there. And then the big test, this is where you're either staying on the island or getting voted off the island. We go up to camp three, which is 3,000 feet above camp two, straight up what's called the Lhotse face, about a 60-degree angle slope that is quite torturous, demoralizing. And you do it without oxygen. You go to Camp 3, and you're going to spend a night there. And if you can make it up there and spend a night without oxygen and can deal with it and get back down, you've got to do it within a certain time frame because if you're too slow, you're exposing yourself to too much danger and you got to make it finally up to the summit of Everest within a certain time frame. And the expedition leader knows based on your earlier rotations whether or not you're going to be fast enough to make it up to the top when that time comes. In fact, one of our teammates who was going through the Kumbu Icefall and up to Camp 2 too slow, he was asked to leave and did not go for the summit. Once you finish that rotation to Camp 3, you come back down. That's usually around April 30th. And then you sit and wait for the summit window. And that could be anywhere from two weeks to three weeks. And a lot of people actually descend lower into the valley at that point. They go down to the green zone, back to Kathmandu or Namche Bazaar, where there's actually flowers and green stuff just to get back down to where there's some oxygen. Our expedition leader didn't believe in that because he felt that You could get exposed to germs and that sort of thing if you did that. Or weather could come in, it would be difficult to get back up. 
So we would just stay at base camp during that two-week period. Question about the Kumbu Icefall. Famed British mountaineer Kenton Cool said, it can implode underneath you, it can drop on you above, or God forbid you can fall into its inner depths never to be seen again. I got to ask, what's it like walking over those crevasses on an aluminum ladder? <laughs> Uh, in 2016, there was over 60 ladders, some of them, I think, eight feet in length. They're just regular aluminum ladders that you would like see at any hardware store or Home Depot. And there's some crevasses in some areas. It's not only over crevasses. You've got to go up ice cliffs. So there's some vertical ladders. There's horizontal ladders and everything in between. And sometimes there's four or five, even six ladders that are roped together. And these things are not steady when you walk on them and you're wearing very heavy boots with metal crampons on them. And those metal crampons have 12 sharp points meant to dig into the snow. And you've got to step just right on the ladder so that you don't slip off. And then you have two skinny nylon ropes on each side that you've got to grab with your gloves and put your carabiner onto those. You've got a, two carabiners that are attached to your harness with a tether. And you come up to the ladder, you attach yourself to those two ropes on each side of you, and you hold those very tight and lean forward so that they're taunt. As you walk across the ladder, it's very easy to lean too far to the left and lean too far to the right. And then you start to do that. The ladder starts to shake and everything goes wrong and you're falling off that thing. Oh. The worst thing in the world is to fall off. You're, you're attached to the ladder through those ropes, but you're hanging below it. And it takes literally four or five people to get you back out in about 30 minutes. And during that time frame, anything could happen, you know, ice, avalanche. So your whole purpose is not to make a mistake. And that makes you very stressful, particularly when you start going through it your first time and you hadn't done it very much. But given how many ladders there are, you've got to become proficient. And once you do become proficient, even though it's the most terrorizing mile and a half on the earth, given any time one of those blocks of ice can fall on you, it is stunningly beautiful. It's just, there's nothing like it anywhere on the earth. So your attention goes from being terrified to being just amazed at what you're looking at. And after a few rotations through it, you kind of feel like you're invincible, which is probably not how you should feel, <laughs> but you do. And you start appreciating just how dramatic an area that you're in. And you start to feel like proud and that you're making it across these ladders now with some proficiency and style. And you're kind of like, hey, look at me. I can do this now. And anyway, it's, it's accelerating. They say that when you're in a battle, like if you're a Marine or something in a battle, that after a while, it becomes addictive. They want to go back and fight. You know, there's some adrenaline. Right. And I think that's, that's kind of like the Kumbu Icefall. It's that place where once you get over the terror of what could happen in there, it's just a place that, given that there's nowhere else like it on Earth from a beauty and geographic standpoint, it's so inviting in a way. <laughs> One of the things that can happen involves a word, Serac. What is that? Serac is a, a large block of ice the size of an office building hanging above you thousands of feet they can fall at any time and kill you. <laughs> okay. From a serious standpoint, in 2014, 
there was a Serac that fell in the middle of the icefall on 16 Sherpa and killed them. And it's exactly what Russell Bryce was so concerned about in 2012 when he canceled our expedition. He was looking at a a large block of ice. It was hanging over the ice field, and he was just thinking that could break any time. When he canceled our expedition and said half of you could die, there was 32 of us in that room. And on April 18th, not too many days ago, in 2014, that very Serac fell and killed 16 people, half the people in the room when he canceled our expedition in 2012. A vindication of sorts, I'm sure he wasn't after. Right. So we survived the terror that is the Kumba Icefall. Maybe we picked up the Kumba cough along the way. What is that, by the way? The Kumbu cough is something you want to avoid. At that altitude, one, the air is very thin and it's very dry. And because of the lack of oxygen, you're breathing twice as hard to get enough oxygen. And you're exerting yourself physically doing these rotations, climbing up. So you're breathing hard in very dry air, and it's easy to get a scratch in your throat. And to try to get rid of that scratch, you cough. The more you cough, the worse the scratch gets to the point where it's debilitating and can be expedition ending if you don't take a break and get over it. It's also, I should mention, just base camp. There are people more than you would imagine that just because of how rocky it is, they sprain an ankle going from their tent to the toilet tent just because they're not careful and they slip on a rock and sprain an ankle or fall on a shoulder and hurt their shoulder and suddenly their expedition's over. Just so many things can happen. Kumbu cough, sprained ankle, any number of illnesses that don't go away. Half the people attempting to climb Mount Everest don't make it for those kind of reasons. So we've arrived at Camp 2, the Western Coom. By the way, for listeners, that's spelled C-W-M. I know that makes no sense. Coom is Welsh for bowl, the Valley of Silence. Why do they call it that? Why is it so quiet? You're in a horseshoe bowl. Lhotse is at the end of the Coom, and it rises sharply up, Lhotse being the fourth highest peak. On your left, as you're going up the Coombe, is the western flank of Everest. And on your right is Noops, 25,000-foot mountain. And you're in this horseshoe bowl, very little wind. It's all snow and ice on all sides of you. It's a reflector of sorts. You attempt to try to get to Camp 2 by 9 o'clock because any time after that, even before that, the sun is up and it's reflecting against the snow all on you. and Any part of your body that has like your summit suit, usually they're red or blue or green or something, it absorbs the heat. And literally at 9.30 in the morning in the Western Coombe, if you take out a thermometer, it's like 110 degrees and you're at 22, 20,000 feet and you're going, what the heck? I thought, you know, mountains are supposed to be cold. It's nothing you're prepared for. They don't tell you about how hot it is on Mount Everest. You only hear about how cold it is. But a cloud comes out and covers the sun, and suddenly it goes from 110 degrees down to 20 degrees in the matter of seconds. Wow. And the sweat on your back that is there because of how hot it was suddenly (laughs) feels very cold. And your summit suit is now down to your waist. And as soon as cloud comes up, you're pulling it back up, and then cloud goes away, and it's hot again. It's torturous. It's miserable. It's about a 10-degree slope 
and it doesn't look like it should be hard, but because of those drastic changes in the temperature and just the unexpected fact that it's hot, that makes the Western Coombe one of the most miserable parts of the climb. So we're climbing the Lhotse Face at this point and on to Camp 3. Just the name Lhotse Face sounds like quite the challenge. What's your physical situation at this point of the climb? I know Lhotse is the fourth highest mountain in the world. Tell us about this section of the trek. You go from about a 10 degree angle to 60 degrees and it becomes quite real at that point. You're now on a rope, a fixed line, separated by every 200 feet or so by an anchor, anchoring each section of rope into the ice and snow of the Lhotse face. And you're attached with a jumar. It's an ascending device that hooks onto the rope and it moves up the rope, but it won't move back because it has teeth in it that grab onto the rope. That's your safety line. And you're experiencing the effects of the high altitude at this point, every step takes about five breaths out of you. So the progress is slow. Your calves are burning because your crampons are sticking into the snow, holding you onto the slope. It could be quite hot. It could be quite cold. It could be quite windy. All of that happening in the space of the six to eight hours it takes you to go less than a mile and 3,000 feet from camp two up to camp three. And You've got to be very mindful every time you get to an anchor or where a section of rope ends. You have to switch your jumar from one rope to the other, and you've got to make sure you do it correctly because people die when they don't do it correctly and they forget that to attach to stay attached to the slope and they lean back and suddenly they're off and sliding down the Lhotse face. It was very demoralizing the first time I went up there to camp three because it was so hard and it took everything I got and I could not imagine coming back and doing that again, which is what you had to do if you were going to go summit. <laughs> well, now we're moving on to camp four, sir, the death zone, not a place I want to spend much time in with a name like that. 26,000 feet. Why is it called that, by the way? Above 26,000 feet, for some reason, your body is just dying. There's not enough oxygen in the air to keep things going for more than 24 hours. So all your different bodily functions are in a state of deterioration. And just the very fact that you're in the death zone and it's called that makes you mentally pretty stressed out. You get up there to camp four and mind you, it took me four years of going to Nepal, three attempts on Everest to finally get up to camp four. It's a very eventful place in the history of Everest. It's where into thin air and all that that disaster played out. It's where things go wrong big time. But it's also the staging area of actually being able to summit Everest. Everything you've worked for, for whatever number of years it's taken you to get there, whether it's one year, your first time, or multiple attempts like that, it all comes together at Camp 4. Because when you're there, you know you've got a chance of getting to the top of the world. That is an amazing feeling to just step into your tent and sit down and look out from the tent and you can see the curvature of the earth and realize you're there. You're where history is played out. It's euphoric. It's terrorizing. There's this sinister feeling there. There's the ghost of the past. You know that there's literally 250 dead bodies between you and the summit. That plays on your mind. It's a dramatically beautiful place. You can look up and see almost to the top of Everest. You can look down over Lhotse and 
and many mountains and just sit there and ponder in this kind of dreamy state made by the lack of oxygen that you actually made it and you've got a chance. I don't want to go all macabre here, but when I drive to the hospital, if I'm passing the bodies of a bunch of device reps, I'm not sure I'm going to go to the hospital that day. I'm just curious, what's it like hiking past people who have passed away on this journey up there? Do you get used to it, or does it really start to mess with you mentally? Honestly, it's a good question because fortunately there was two to three feet of new snow that was there on my summit attempt because a storm came in two days before we were to go to the summit. I was fortunate not to have to see any bodies. And since we were the first team to summit in 2016, there were nine deaths that year, but it it occurred after our summit and after we went down. I can only give you anecdotal (laughs) accounts of what people felt like. I was not particularly looking forward to seeing any bodies. I saw plenty of death when I was there over the three years. When they had the avalanche that killed 16 Sherpa, we had to watch bodies being airlifted out, long-lined out of the Kumbu Icefall. But fortunately, that was an experience I did not have to go through, actually seeing a body But I can tell you in a normal season when there's the normal amount of snow, there's often times where people have to just step over a body, you know, to get to the top. Mountaineers are pretty hardcore folks that push their emotions to the side. And death is a fact when you are in these big mountains and you kind of develop thick skin, you know, to get through that kind of stuff. Well, walk us from there to the summit, the last big push. It's 830 at night. You are in a tent with a teammate. I mention that because when you're at base camp, you are in a tent all by yourself. You need the room for all your gear and for your sanity uh, because you're there for literally, as I pointed out, all the rotations and rest. You're there for over a month at base camp. But on the mountain, you share a tent with a teammate so that you don't have to take so much equipment up. When I was at the South Pole for Camp 4, the night before we were to summit, we were both very anxious. It was hard to rest, let alone sleep, knowing that in four hours we were going to either have the best day of our life or the last day of our life or both. You are not going to believe what he found at the summit. Just wait till you hear what happened on the way down. Just incredible. Hey, when you're doing a two-parter, you need a cliffhanger, in this case, a literal one, right? Well, I want to leave you with this to ponder until we meet again. Something I've been pondering a lot lately is I have my own mountain range to contend with. We started out talking about the concept of the little idea and the big idea. What's the definition of idea anyway? The first definition is a thought or suggestion as to a possible course of action. Now, that's a perfectly reasonable definition as I sit down to my favorite Thai restaurant tomorrow. Do I go Penang curry or the tried-and-true Pad Thai smother with peanut dressing? But you don't climb a mountain with a suggestion or a possible course of action, right? That leads us to the second definition, which I love, the aim or purpose. Now, if you're going to climb a bona fide mountain, whether it's literal like Mount Everest or figurative, you need a good team, you need good gear, you need to be prepared physically, all things we're going to look at throughout our summit series, but aim and purpose, yeah, that really needs to be dialed in before you even think about heading to REI and dropping a lot of cash, right? Well, fun fact, one third of the climbers who set out to summit Mount Everest each year, they never reach the top. It's a hard climb, even if everything goes right, how much harder? 
If you haven't said to yourself, self, I'm going to climb this mountain, good Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, right? Good thing to ask ourselves before we get halfway up some of these things and realize, you know, not really into it. You ever hire somebody like that? I certainly have. Well, speaking of, I had an inspiring conversation with a PA recently looking for a little life change. She voiced concern several times about qualifications to be a device rep. I said, of course you're qualified. What usually determines success or not is that whole aim and purpose. To that end, I spent a good time with her detailing the good, the bad, and the ugly of this job. Why? Because I wanted her to know the difference between this job and the idea of this job. I'll say it again a different way. Was it being a device rep or was it the idea of being a device rep? Aim and purpose, a big idea wrapped in commitment. They have to be married to reality, a subject we really need to spend some time on with the next generation of box openers before they get hired. You don't want to put them in front of a mountain. They start climbing, then quit halfway up, upset, as they thought they were going to make a million dollars and do absolutely nothing. Let's tie it up with this great quote from Joe Ellison. You can't quite take Mount Everest in, not fully. It's so far away that when you can see all of it, that it looks like a painting. And close up, it's so big that it's not possible to know what you're even looking at. It's almost as if the mountain hides itself. You can't see Camp 3 until you get to Camp 2. Then you only see Camp 4 once you get around the side of the mountain. Even on Summit Day, it looks unrelenting. The size is a huge problem to overcome mentally, unquote. Life is so like this, isn't it? Climb one mountain one day, then you find two more peaks coming at you tomorrow you knew nothing about, and it never stops. It's unrelenting. Sounds like quota. Is it depressing? No. It's just life. And reaching the top of these challenges in life, it so involves climbing along after the idea of climbing has worn off, doesn't it? Seeing a theme today, I drove three states away not too long ago to cover a uni. It turned into a competitive total. Was I upset? No. I climbed. Aim and purpose, the big idea wrapped in commitment. I'm going to persevere in this amazing job alongside these amazing people. That settled for me, at least this week. We covered a lot of stuff today. If I had to sum it all up, it's this. Every journey begins with a single step, and that step is not a literal step. It's just deciding in our minds we will keep climbing this mountain in front of us. I want to close with a huge thank you to my fellow climbers as we just blew past not 44,250. That would be ironic, wouldn't it? But 75,000 downloads this week. Just an amazing journey laboring alongside industry giants. I'm talking to you. So appreciate you and how much you inspire me, and so look forward to seeing you the next episode as we summit together. Together.